Video Game The Movie The Podcast. Heidi Howdy Ho Podcast Arenos, welcome to another episode of Video Game The Movie The Podcast, where we discuss movies that were based on video games. I am your host, Mackenzie Eastrom. I am another of your hosts, Nathan Eastrom. And I am another, another of your hosts, Lexi Conwell. And today we got another spooky one. I know spooky season is over, but uh, I refuse to let that stop us because most video game movies of this time period are horror movies. We are talking about 2005's Blood Rain. daughter, a mighty leader. She could mean the end, the beginning of the world as we know it. A prophet. They have been talking for years that Kagan was in search of a prodigious child. Where is she? A young hero. Make us think that you won't attack. A guardian. A land ruled by evil. A secret society of Avengers. This is the headquarters of the Brimstone Society. Physical strength means nothing. I do not intend to stop fighting for a second. Will the world be ruled by light or darkness? Prepare to witness the beginning of the new era. directed by Uwe Boll. Who, yeah, of course, it's just another vampire slash, you know, just undead beings movie. Yes. So, <sighs> Blood Rain. This one is, is another Uwe Boll special. I will try to quickly run it down. Blood Rain is the story of Rain, spelt with a Y, a half-vampire woman who uh, is on a mission to kill her vampire dad because he's a real jerkwad. On this mission, she finds herself brought into a group called... What's the group called again? Brimstone. The Brimstone Society. Yes, the Brimstone Society, which is a group of ancient vampire hunters, specifically three of them, uh, Vladimir... I think it's Catherine and Sebastian. Katerine. Katerine. Yeah. Katerine's dad is also a vampire. That's not super important, but it comes up. Uh, and, you know, she goes to a couple of different locations. She gets kidnapped a couple times. Meatloaf is there in the end. Everybody ends up dead except for her. Uh, but she does kill her dad. So that's, it's not really a plot heavy movie. I feel like we'll there, get into it more beat by beat later. You also missed a side plot that is apparently important where there are three artifacts that, three vampire artifacts, an eye, a heart, and a rib that if they're combined give a vampire the power 
to like it it stops all the weaknesses of vampires yes. and okay, so it's the, like a thing that people plan. are after the evil dad's plan is to get all the relics and become the unstoppable vampire lord of earth uh rain gets the eyeball and then the heart he already has the rib and then she she kills him uh it's not the, the relics don't really play that much into it besides the this would be dangerous uh and katarine betrays the bridgestone society at some point in time because her dad is a vampire and she thinks that the leadership at the brimstone society is weak so she's like screw this i'm gonna give one of the relics to my dad because at least then there's two evil vampires instead of one mega evil vampire but she gets killed by rain so it's fine uh also her boyfriend sebastian gets killed they become a thing later. Uh, it's terrible. I, th- I think that's about all there is to it. Uh, we'll get into details as it goes. It's, again, not super... I mean, there are a lot of plot elements going on, but they're all very, like, lightweight fantasy stuff. So you're, like, you're following it mostly, regardless of if you're paying that much of attention. No. Yeah. And this it's, isn't so it's much it- a movie as it is a stack of events just layered on top of each other and then ran through with something that scatters them all over. Yep. That's a, okay. it's Uwe Boll. He doesn't know what a structural edit is. He did now, slightly better. I, yeah, I'm going to be controversial here. This is the best movie he's made so far. And I actually kind of enjoyed Blood Rain. I know that it's not good on any level, but it was so much less bad, in my opinion, than the other Uwe Boll movies and had enough, like, interesting-ish elements and fun-ish characters that I was I was fine with it. Like, I didn't hate watching it in any way, shape, or form. I, it was I, fine. I kind I, of enjoyed myself most of it. I will mostly ag- agree with you. Uh, I'm not sure I enjoyed it exactly, but there were certain characters and moments that I... I did enjoy, but I wouldn't say that I enjoyed the movie. I was really bored. And let's be clear here. I'm not exactly sure why this one I feel necessary to say I enjoyed as opposed to tolerated, but it might just be my kind of trash Mm. in some way that I don't understand. Yeah, there are there are moments. (laughs) There are moments in this movie that are enjoyable. Little oases in a sea of boring underdressed location shoots okay but here's the thing the baseline for this is so much higher than alone in the dark or house of the dead because i don't hate everything that's going on true fair boredom is a lot better than disgust (laughs) (laughs) uh the bar on this podcast is so fucking low keeping in mind i enjoyed this more than Uwe Boll movies. It is not in any way something I would recommend above even a Laura Croft. <laughs> that is, that, that's fair. Unless uh, you really, really like vampires, in which case, I mean, like, you're probably already seeing this. People like vampires, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. How do we want to go through this thing? Uh, well, let's start with some game facts, because this is another one that we haven't covered in a franchise before, so... Let's do some background of the game this is adapted from. The original Blood Rain came out in the early 2000s for PlayStation 2 and PC, and it is a game where you play as the title character Rain, who is a half-vampire, 
This game is not set in the 1800s as the movie is, but in 1930s. That's supposed to be the 1800s? According to the Wikipedia summary. That's not right. They don't give a timestamp, and it's definitely earlier than the 1800s. Yeah. It's like 1600s, maybe. Maybe they meant to say 18th century, which would make it the 1700s, but even that is not- That's French Revolution. Yeah, that's That's still too late. Yeah. Yeah. And they had like, but they also had like Victorian woodwork that I- it seemed pretty distinct, but it was not that level of technology. Okay, let's just be yeah. clear. The end of the eighteen hundred or the end of the seventeen hundreds, they had electricity. Oh yeah. So that's not. This is not right. Sorry. This is a this, distraction. This is just back to the game facts. I'm I'm just going off what the internet tells me. <laughs> okay, eighteenth century is what it says here, which is still not accurate but anyway the game is set in 1930s america and other places they go to germany for the bulk of the middle of the game uh but it's set in the 1930s you play as rain who's a half vampire recruited in a cutscene by the brimstone society to hunt evil creatures and protect people from the forces of darkness it's all very vague there isn't really much setup in the game you're just kind of dropped in you start in act one in a town called morton louisiana where you're supposed to investigate the zombification of some of the town's populace and you encounter weird mutant spider creatures in the swamps you have a mentor in the game named mince which is spelt with a y as well who is also a sexy lady wearing a fetish outfit because every woman in this game wears a ridiculous fetish outfit and has massive boobs because this game was made for 13 year olds (laughs) 13-year-old straight boys, to be yes. specific. Yeah, that's a... Uh, you, you track down the source of this disturbance to a large mutant brood queen that is sending these creatures out. But before you can track her down, Mince gets vored whole by one of these <laughs> mutants in what is a really upsetting sequence, honestly. <laughs> Nathan actually and, played this one. Yeah, I played the whole game. Oh. Uh, All the survivors get killed. You track down the queen, you kill her, but you find in her corpse a glowing rib, which turns out to be one of three artifacts, which is one of the few things that they pulled from the game intact. Can I just say a quick correction here? We've been using the word artifact. The correct word is relic. It's very distinctly a Catholic style relic. Yes. In the sense of like a piece of an important person's body. Like that's a thing. Yes. In this case, the brood queen was being mutated by a rib bone from an ancient demon named Belier, who may or may not have been the original Satan. You get knocked out by a Nazi officer who is also searching for these, or who is actually searching for these relics. And then you hard cut to act two, five years later, it's 1938 and Rain has been sent on a new mission to take out a bunch of Nazi officers in a secret underground base where you cut your way through Nazi soldiers and take out the officers in kind of any order you want, which is a bit a, a bit of neat uh, mechanical variation from a lot of linear games at the time. Uh, eventually, you encounter the officer who attacked 
rain in the Act 1 section. Basically, what it comes down to is that the Nazis are trying to recover all these relics so they can resurrect Belier and use his power to take over the world. Uh, Mintz shows up again, who apparently didn't die, but was working for the Nazis the whole time, except then you kill her, and then, like, five minutes later, she comes back and reveals that she was a double agent, but then she gets killed by the Nazis, so... That's pointless. Um, and then you encounter the resurrected Belier because they Nazis already had one of the three relics and you bring the other two to them in your body and they resurrect Belier and then you have a dual boss fight where you have to take down both the officer Jurgen Wolf who's in charge of this Nazi group and the resurrecting demon Belier. And then at the end they're like, hey, we have a lead on your father. And that's the end of the game. It's like shameless sequel bait and, you know, doesn't really follow up on anything that was introduced in this game. So, yeah, that's the plot of the game. It's very different. The only thing they really adapted from it was the existence of the relics. And they changed Belier's whole thing in the movie to be that he was an ancient, powerful vampire that got vanquished at some point, And they kept parts of his body for some unspoken reason. Yes, this movie has the same problem we've encountered with a number of movies and is, I think, just kind of a problem in a lot of this type of film, which I'm going to call the artifact problem, which is <laughs> if you had three things that you could combine to create an ultimate evil or a portal to hell or a, a thing that causes time travel, something that you've all decided was bad and we should not have, I don't know why you kept them why didn't you just destroy the things? It also kept them within the same country. Yeah, they're all like a few horse rides away from each other. They're all just in, I don't even know if it's actually Romania in the movie, but that's where they filmed it, so I'm going to say it is. They're all just in Romania, in different parts of the country, which is so stupid. If you wanted to separate them, if you couldn't destroy them for whatever reason, why didn't you send them, like, send one of them on a ship to Japan? I don't know. Or just eat them into the ocean. I mean... There are options, you guys. Volcanoes? <laughs> you're a bad society if this is what your solution was. To be fair, the fact that they're a bad society is canon in the movie. Yeah. Everybody gets screwed. By the point the movie starts, all of them have been destroyed except for one small society of this, and, like, they're not doing great. Yeah, literally, there's just vampires everywhere, and everyone just kind of knows this. They're yeah, just everywhere. Not, they're not good at their job. <laughs> they're just getting so, munched <laughs> constantly. Every, like, half the people in the movie are just vampires, and they're like, we're in the shadows. And it's like, no, you're not. You're running the country and just eating people left and right. The movie opens with a scene, a very... Dungeons and Dragons style scene where the Brimstone Society hunters are in a tavern and they're like paying the barkeep for tips about the weird things that have been going on in the area. And a guy comes up to the bar and orders a drink. And then one of the characters, uh, Sebastian, turns a little hand, like a little desk mirror sitting on the bar towards the guy and there's no reflection. So he just stabs him. And it turns out the guy was a vampire and nobody reacts. Yeah. Later in the movie, Rain wanders through town and there's like a vampire in every street corner. It's, it's she, 
And then they she... live levels of submersion in this society. They're just everywhere. Yeah. And, I mean, she ends up just kind of eating one of these vampires in like the street. She just kind of beckons her over and then just like munch. And then people loot the corpse and and it's fine. What? Yeah. what? This, <laughs> this version of Blood Rain supposes that the Brimstone Society sucked. That is the main difference. <laughs> they didn't get to the 1930s in this version because they suck. They will, though, because this movie, despite being a box office bomb, and I assume because Juve Bull finances his own productions, did get two direct-to-video sequels, the third of which is literally called Blood Rain the Third Reich. Oh, God. I mean... I do kind of have to appreciate that as your third movie title, though. Yeah. I mean, like, go for it, if right? You're, if you're going to do a third one, yeah, sure. Can I just... I want to backtrack a little bit. We've gotten into the plot and stuff a little bit, but I do feel like pointing out that this movie has a weirdly stacked cast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre. So we, we were sitting there watching the opening credits. Which are over a series of, like, Renaissance-style paintings, which is which also actually way earlier. Yeah, I liked yeah. the opening to this movie. I was very impressed with it, honestly. <laughs> uh, and, like, also that time period is way before yeah. the 18th century. I, I don't it's think Yuve Bull knows how history works. No, I'm but pretty anyway. sure all of his movies are tax schemes. Like, I'm actually pretty sure that's true. I have a theory about Yuve Bull that I have developed reading about this movie and watching his other ones, but I'll get into that later. We're watching the credits, and the cast starts rolling by, and it's... You know, the main character is played by the woman who was the TX in Terminator 3, who is, you know, I yeah, sure, I can see that. And then the cast keeps going and it's like, oh, Michael Madsen, that's like a bit of a name, you know, character actor. I don't I I can see why he would take a job like this. But, you know, he's a Tarantino regular. He just made a living playing like mafioso types on TV. He's really good. It's like, huh. Okay, whatever. A bit of a name, but sure. And then it keeps going. Michelle Rodriguez. Okay, huh. A bit of a bigger name. She's done some some big stuff. She's one of the headliners of the Fast and Furious franchise now. That's uh, something. I mean, she wasn't as big back then. Ben Kingsley. Okay, what? <laughs> ben Kingsley, who had Sir just Ben won an, Kingsley. He had just won an Oscar. He like, is definitely recently. one of the better parts of this movie. Um, <laughs> also, Meatloaf, Meatloaf, Udo Kier. Udo Kier, yeah. It's <laughs> Billy Zane. It's it's wild to me that he convinced these people to be in this movie. And here's the thing. The fact that this is the slightly best Udo Kier movie, or not Udo Kier, it's not the best Udo Kier movie, trust me. Uh, it's slightly best Uwe Boll movie. Doesn't actually have anything to do with the fact that these actors are in it for the most part, with the exception of Ben Kingsley and Not Meatloaf. For the most part, I, I the guess. actors... Who, who, who's Meatloaf? Meatloaf is the weird sex vampire. That was just really weird. I what? I was... <laughs> I thought it was That scene very was just funny. weird. Oh, no, that's one of the best scenes in the movie. <laughs> but it is, it is weird. It I'm is weird. It's not weird. But I love it. Anyways, Meatloaf okay. of Rocky Horror Picture fame, or, you know, being, being a like, top-charting singer for, like, a long time. Meatloaf, huh. you know. You know, the rock star. <laughs> okay, I really uh, didn't know this at all. I don't know actors. I live under a rock. <laughs> Fair. 
Minnesota is a rock. Um, actually, no, Minnesota is a lake. So anyway, yeah, the, the cast in this movie is weirdly stacked. So with the exception of like our leads, uh, which makes sense. And Johnny Template, who plays Sebastian, whose name I can never remember because he's so boring. Yeah, he's nothing. <laughs> Uh, Matthew Davis. Wow, that's a very boilerplate <laughs> name right there. Yeah. So, the movie starts, as we mentioned, with this bar sequence where we get introduced to our three vampire hunters. Uh, it is worth noting, while every character, female character in this movie doesn't wear fetish gear, most of them have their midriffs exposed for no real reason. Uh, yeah, it's just it like is, crop top. I, uh, crop top corsets, but like just fashion corsets without any kind of, I guess they're just vests. They're not even corsets. Yeah. I didn't find the way the female characters were portrayed in this movie, particularly distracting uh, for the most part uh, with a few exceptions, which we'll get into later. Uh, yeah. The tip that they are getting is about our actual protagonist, Rain, who is a circus freak. Yeah. The barkeep tells them that there is a, woman in this carnival who can do things that no human being is capable of doing. Can do things seems like the wrong, like, active tense here, because Rain is not performing. She is being tortured. They are, like, physically harming her with knives and water and then forcing her to eat goats in front of an audience to heal herself. That's her performance. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's a bad It's kind time. of brutal. And it's, I think, kind of an effective way to introduce a protagonist who otherwise might be a little bit suspicious in a way that makes you sympathize with them, because clearly they don't, they don't, they aren't hurting anybody. Yeah. They're fine. And then we were also introduced to Rain's girlfriend, Amanda. <laughs> yep. Uh, that is another element of this movie. This movie has a lot of lesbian energy, and I'm not sure why? It just I keeps think it's, coming up. I, I'm pretty sure it's not because yay lesbians. I think it's because of male gays. Uve oh, yeah, yeah, for not, sure. Like, <laughs> vampire tits. But other than that. Like, that's fair. But also, they aren't often doing the very levacious, like, ooh, lesbian. Like, they aren't framing it well. Maybe it's just because Uwe Boll is a terrible filmmaker that he can't even get exploitation right. <laughs> That like, that tracks. As as an effect, it just means every now and then there's like some lesbians around. It is notable that this movie was not. This is one of the few Uwe Boll movies that he did not write himself, at least not entirely. This movie was based on a screenplay by a woman named Guinevere Turner, who has also worked on a ton of other stuff. Also, Guinevere Turner, great name. Um, but what is interesting about this movie as it relates to the way that the female characters are portrayed is that it was written by a woman, but she turned her script in and then Uwe Boll basically rewrote like 80% of it and then gave it to the lead actors and told them to take a crack at like punching it up. So only like 20% of what she wrote actually made it into the final movie. I do think, however, it shows in the way that the overall story arc works. Her most notable other thing was she wrote the screenplay for American Psycho, which is a great movie. Oh, wow. That's like a really good yeah. screenplay. It's really beloved. 
Uh, it's a little upsetting, <laughs> but that's intentional. I don't, I, again, I'm going to sound defensive of this movie sometimes, but I think it does show that there was actually women involved in the creative process in this, at least a little bit. It doesn't seem as bad as it could have been without that influence, at the very least. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Rain's girlfriend Amanda has an act at the circus where she just cuts stuff up with her cool elbow swords. Yes, this is Rain's signature weapon in the games. There are kind of tonfa-style handles that have swords on them and as opposed to clubs. They're very cool. Like, the weapons are cool. Amanda is, like, promising that her uncle will come and take them away from the circus, and she's going to take Rain with her, and she gives her a crucifix as a present uh, in just, like, a really gay scene. It's just very gay. And then we get a quick cut back to the vampire killers, uh, and then we just kind of, like, cut into Rain screaming in the woods. They do... Rain's escape from the circus as a blurry flashback after she has already escaped. She goes to the woods and is now covered in blood and screaming and crying. And we find out through a series of flashbacks that one of the circus performers or what circus dudes comes into her cage and uh, tries to sexually assault her. And then she just like bites him. And then because She's, I guess, starving and is half well, vampire. Well, she, she smashes him over the head with a bottle, which opens a cut on his head. Oh, and the blood right. from the cut drives her to bite him. Right. And then uh, from there, she bites a few more circus people, including like the ringmaster who was like cutting her up. Uh, and then she accidentally bites. She runs into her girlfriend who is actually coming to, like, give her swords so that she can escape. Uh, But she ends up biting her. Uh, She doesn't quite kill her, but she has been bit and then runs off. But this is all a flashback. Uh, It's just like, why? We could have just done that. We could have just had this happen. Now, my theory on why this is, or at least justification in my mind for why this is a flashback and not just the events in order is that unfortunately a woman killing her assaulter is not an inherently uh, seen as like a heroic or justified act in a lot of film viewers' eyes. So if you jump all the way to the end where it's clear she's very upset about all the murders she did and is sad and crying in the woods, then when you show her murdering a bunch of people, you can still like her. Uh, It's trying to avoid a kick the dog moment. I don't think that's necessary, but I I don't think it's the worst way around that if you think that's a problem. Mm. I don't think that's what they were doing, but I I can see that argument. Yeah, my my thought was that they didn't get enough shots of the circus murder spree. <laughs> so they just that's did also- it in a surreal kind of flashback thing. You do get the sense that there is some uh, some lack of footage in this movie, like all Uwe Boll movies. Yeah. They just did not get enough coverage. Uh, so the circus murders happen. The vampire hunters show up to, you know, track down the thing they were told about. Uh, and oopsie daisies, a bunch of vampire dead people, like recently killed people, are just like littered around. But it's all of even... the circus people are just kind of... 
sitting around, like taking a smoke break mostly. This this very much happens in the middle of the night. The this like when the people die, they die. It is full dark. It is now morning, and absolutely no one has like cleaned up the bodies. People are just hanging out. Well, their boss did just get killed, to be fair. I don't know what I would do if my boss got killed. But then three randos wander into the middle of this and just, without talking to anybody or saying anything to the circus performers, just start chopping the heads off of dead bodies and dumping, like, oil on them. And, then they and just... nobody does or says anything about it. Yeah, it's just... It's so weird. Yeah, there isn't a reaction yeah. from the crowd. You get the sense that everybody in this universe is kind of used to vampires occasionally murdering people. Like, oh man, that's the third ringmaster we've lost this month. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, they stab Amanda because she got bit. Even though it is literally never established in this movie whether or not rain can turn people into vampires. Which I think it kind of becomes rain just never... an accepted thing later on because she tries to turn yeah. Sebastian at the end she and he's like, no, I let me die. Okay, but also she never finds out that the vampire hunters she spends the rest of the movie with killed her girlfriend. That is true. They yeah, never really, she they never, never follow up on that. She never knows. She spends the rest of her life thinking her girlfriend is fine and not stabbed literally by the guy she screws later. Yeah. You'd almost think there was some dramatic tension there that might come back later in the movie to drive the conflict in some way or impact character growth, but nope. This is a Juve Bull movie. This is one of my main problems with this film is that the first half of the movie kind of sets up the Brimstone Society as though it might be, like, also an antagonist. Like, oh, they've gotten, they're, they're kind of dark and they they aren't always justified in what they're doing, etc., etc. But, like, no, they're supposed to be heroic. They're just not framed very well. <laughs> Oopsie doodles. Uh, so, Rain goes into town and then we have that other weird gay moment where she's, like, wandering through town looking at vampires and you can tell who the vampires are because they start with a normal face, but then they turn to look at her and they go, <sighs> uh, baring their teeth and like, they look like Buffy vampires. They really um, do. Like quite a lot. So she like goes, stands across the street from this like high society looking lady and just like beckons her over. And instantly this lady's like, oh yeah, I'm into this. <laughs> and they are clearly about to make out and then Rain kills her. And I'm just like, this society is totally aware that there are vampires everywhere. This vampire lady knows that she's a vampire and just wants to like make out. And like apparently lesbianism is just cool. <laughs> I don't know. This is a weird, weird culture. I would like to do some anthropology on the Blood Rain Society. <laughs> Um, maybe it was the 1800s, but the vampires have just regressed all technology. Who knows? Um, it's kind of weird. Uh, and then she steals a horse, which is not but, really important. No, no. Before she steals a horse, she encounters a fortune teller oh, yeah, the fortune who teller. explains what is going to happen next in the movie and then is never seen nor heard from again in the rest of the film. 
The movie pretty frequently references a prophecy. We are never explicitly told what this prophecy is. I think it's referencing that if the relics are brought together, whoever has all three of them will become the most powerful vampire in the world. I think that's the prophecy, but it's never explicitly told to us. I think that's part of the prophecy, but I think it's also implied that there's a prophecy about a damn fear, which is the the half vampire, half human. And somehow it relates to Kagan and which is her father and the artifacts. But it, yeah, it's never actually mentioned. She's like a chosen one, but we're not allowed to know whether or not she's a chosen one. It's very weird. It's important to note that as a damn fear, Part of the mechanics of that is that she doesn't have most of the weaknesses of a vampire except for holy water, but she is immune to the effects of, yeah, just water. Um, but she's immune to the effects of crucifixes and uh, sunlight. No, she's still allergic to sunlight because when she's in the weird sex dungeon, she covers herself up in a blanket when the uh, when the windows get smashed. Yeah, so she doesn't get murder related. I guess it's just crucifixes then. Yeah, but she's she al- immune to crucifixes. But she also rides for like three days and three nights to get to a monastery after stealing a horse. It's not really clear. She's The sunlight thing is basically only relevant when it needs to be, maybe. Yeah, it's not clear. But the fortune teller is very clear in laying out the objectives for the rest of the movie because that's her job, goddammit, and she's gonna do it. This is a very useful type of exposition character because the time period and the setting are so like, ooh, old-timey mystical. You can just kind of get away with like, um, fortune teller. Yeah. Fortune teller will just, just give us the plot and then we don't have to deal with them again. They're not anybody. They're just like, I feel like it's my personal responsibility to get into everybody's business today. (laughs) (laughs) The relevant piece of information that the fortune teller gives her is that the the eye of, I think they call him Belial in the movie as opposed to Belier, but in any case, the eye of this ancient vampire is in a monastery three days ride from the town. So that's where she goes next, and the vampire hunters are tracking her. Uh, it's also established in the sequence that Rain has no real, like, intense feelings for protecting all of humanity. She just really wants to kill her dad, which is fair. Her dad's a jerk. Oh, yes. Yeah. She also learns that her her mother was raped by Kagan, and that's how she was conceived. So that's part of the reason she is so very, very hellbent on killing her dad. <laughs> She is very angry at her dad. Um, uh, also, Michelle Rodriguez's... We got to cut away to Michelle Rodriguez's dad for a little while here, who is just kind of like... I love him. Uh, yeah, he's kind of hilarious. The other gets, best character in the movie. Yeah, he get, his name is Elrich, or Elric, and he gets about five minutes of screen time split among, like, two scenes. He's just this, like, kind of... Not flamboyant, but like stoically flamboyant dandy vampire who just kind of is aware that he's trying to take over the world at, from Kagan, but is just like kind of casual about it. It's just like, yeah, I'm just doing this thing. I'm going to send a, a letter to my daughter, Katerine. Um, he's got a, a servant write the letter out. And the, the, uh, after writing the letter with with 
minor input, mostly facial expressions from the servant. Uh, he asks him, what do you think? And he's like, I think it, it sounds excellent. He's just like, you're such a suck up. <laughs> <laughs> he's a really great a little addition to this movie. Plot level, he used to be Brimstone, uh, but now he's a vampire and he's just like, you know what? I like this better. I'm just going to try to take over the world now. I'm not on good terms with my daughter who's a vampire hunter, but like, I might as well send her a letter. It's fine. Maybe she can help me take over the world. Yeah, he is played by Billy Zane in just the most terrible wig in the entire movie, (laughs) but he's having so much fun with it. This wig is so clearly synthetic. It glistens in the lighting. (laughs) But he is just having so much fun with this role and just like chewing on every line. And it's so much fun to watch. Even though he doesn't really do anything in any of his scenes, he's just talking. But he's so much fun. And I wish that we had more of that in this movie. The only reason he's relevant at all, like, in the movie, is he is the mechanical way that they learn where the Brimstone Society is based. Because he sends the letter to his daughter, his daughter sends a letter back, and then it's like, ah, we know where you are now. Time time, not, time to not murder even that. Brimstone Society. He gets, like, in his second scene, murdered, I think presumably, and then the other evil vampire comes after them. He is not important in any Elric? meaningful No, he doesn't way. die. We don't know what don't happens think. to Elric. This is yeah, the problem I guess with we Elric. Don't know. We had this conversation when we were watching the movie because I had no idea what happened to him, and that's because we get the scene between him and Kagan's right-hand vampire. No, human. Is he's he a, a human? Yeah. He's a thrall. He's a thrall. Oh. I don't think I even picked up on that, but His I guess whole that deal makes is that sense. He wants to be a vampire, but he just has to be a lackey until they let him be a vampire. This movie's details are poorly communicated. Yeah. Um, his his right-hand person, uh, who has been running around doing errands and murdering for him, uh, is also his go-between with Elric, who he's in a tentative alliance with. Uh, but he... Uh, Elric offers this guy a like seat at the table when he takes over the vampire throne from Kagan. And then we're just kind of left with this shot of Elric with a sword pressed against his chest and the other guy deciding what to do. And then it cuts away and we never come back to Elric. We never learn what happened to him. Yeah, the next he, thing- he doesn't even, like, have the sword pressed to his chest. Elric, like, casually just kind of pushes the sword off of his chest. And so it's just like, what happened? What? Yeah. From context clues, the next things that happen are this right-hand man guy goes and attacks the Brimstone Society and then brings Rain to her dad, Kagan. So we have to assume that he is still loyal to Kagan, which would mean that he killed Elric. This is only understandable through post-mortem context cluing, because again, it is dropped like a hot potato. But There is no follow-up. But Elric also is a vampire and should be way stronger than this dude. So, like, he he's is, he never shows any fear at all that he's in danger. So it's just I, it just doesn't not dealt with well. 
I, I had canon that Elric is fine and off doing stupid vampire dandy things. <laughs> Maybe Elric just like ran away through his trap door. I don't know. He is he only important in so much as it allows Michelle Rodriguez to betray all of the people she knows. Yeah. That's it. Because um, I guess we kind of skipped far ahead here. Yeah, we're... In our going through this movie, we're actually still back at the monastery, so... Blood Rain, sorry, just Rain, goes to the monastery where she is helped by Udo Kier, a friendly monk (laughs) who is also too good for this movie. He is credited only as Regal Monk and is in this movie for all of five minutes? Yes. He offers her a place to stay, gives her some food and a place to rest, she goes into the basement of the monastery to find one of the relics where she finds an evil spinning disc room of badly CGI death wheels. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a like pretty typical, oh, there's a trap for you can get the relic kind of thing. She throws one of her swords at the wall to figure out how to do the thing and then cartwheels through to get the eyeball. After which she, after getting the eyeball, taking it off the pedestal, instead of having more sword wheels, the room fills with water, which I guess makes sense if you're going to like burn a vampire. But like you already have sword wheels. They've already got the thing. Why do you need water? Here's in addition to that. The, the thing that these relics do is that if you assimilate one of these relics into your body as a vampire, it grants you immunity to one of these three major weaknesses, right? Yeah. That's the idea. Why in the world would you put the relic that cancels out the weakness to water in a trap room that uses water? Yeah, yep. just like... You just gave them the way out. <laughs> I know from like a plot construction perspective it's convenient because you can immediately show that she's no longer weak to water sure there are other ways to do that but also (laughs) these monks are terrible at their job (laughs) although let's establish this there are three weaknesses to vampires in this world that are established it's crucifixes water and sunlight but also maybe fire unclear they never really deal with that part of it um, we already established by getting in there in the first place, crucifixes aren't a problem because it's a monastery and the door is a big crucifix and there's crucifixes everywhere. If you got this far, also, crucifixes also, aren't a problem. Also, she's wearing a crucifix that her girlfriend Amanda gave her. <laughs> yes, but like if there's a theoretical break trying to get the get the relic here, you can't, you can't stop them with crucifixes because they're already in there. You can't necessarily stop them with sunlight because they could just do it at night, which is what rain does. But water is, you kept the water thing in the only place where water is your last resort. Yeah. Why didn't you lead with water? Why did you lead with spinny saws? Lead with water. If someone gets it, use spinny swords. Because in addition to the three main things, they are still stabbable. (laughs) Very stabbable. Extremely yeah, stabbable. Yeah, by seemingly anything. There, there, there's no rule that it has to be a, a wooden stake in this movie. They get stabbed and decapitated by just normal ass swords all the time, and they seem to be completely vulnerable to it. Yeah. D- 
Decapitating them seems necessary if you want to make it stick, but that's about it. Like, you have to add a tertiary, a secondary method to make sure that they stay dead, but they will go down pretty easy, really, relatively speaking, in vampire terms. Yeah, they're not so fast. I don't know how... They're not particularly strong. They're just there. Yes. Oh, I also, this is backtracking, but I kind of appreciate how they deal with the costume for the main character in this movie, at least initially, because the costume, it's pretty accurate to the one in the game, which is to say it's real stupid, <laughs> but it's really stupid because in the first place, it's a costume that was given to her to be a circus performer. So I'm like kind of on board with that. Like, yeah, of course it, she's wearing something dumb and impractical. It definitely she's a circus works. clown. It definitely works as a circus outfit. This is subverted later. So Udo Kier finds her. She has absorbed the eyeball, and he's like, "No, you can't take that. Uh, or your dad's gonna be a problem. Do you understand?" And then she's like, not really. And then the monastery gets, like, invaded by her dad's forces. So she just kind of leaves. It's fine. <laughs> uh, this movie has a number of fight scenes. And until the very end of the movie, the fight scene choreography is absolutely terrible. But Oh, it's bad. It's, it's so it's terrible. It's just like they cut, they, they skip the actual movements a lot of the time. No, it's, it's okay. I have described it as limp wrists, wobbly knees, and spurts of blood that you cut to. Yeah. You the don't actually spurts... see happen. You cut to them. The blood spurts are the best part of these action sequences, let's be honest. Yeah. And uh, the choreography's failings are really secondary to the editing failing, or maybe part of the reason why the editing is so bad is that you just can't show these people actually doing this or else everybody would leave. It's, it's it's very just... it's very clear that no one knows how to do stunts in this movie except for the like one like Asian martial artist who is a monk in this Romanian country uh, who ha- does some decent staff work except it it's not even that good because you don't stop swords head on with a stick you redirect them with a stick. They're just like yeah. blocking head off, like these sword blows with a stick straight on. And it looks terrible. Sense, <laughs> do you ever get the sense that like some people don't realize that Eastern monks are not Catholic monks? They're like Buddhist monks. Because I get that sense from this movie. <laughs> uh, it would idiot. not surprise me. <laughs> Can I go on my tangent about the swords? Yes, Nathan has a big thing about the swords. Are they dull? Okay. <laughs> Very. <laughs> Extremely. <laughs> they don't even show any signs of being forged blades. They're just chunks of metal. <laughs> they have no lines down the center. The points are completely rounded, and they're way too thick to be an act like actual sword blades. They're practice swords. They're like weighted metal pla- practice swords, but everybody is using them in every scene of the movie. It's, it looks ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and nobody cheap knows props. how to use them. Yeah, they're so yeah. bad. Their footwork it's, is it's footwork weird terrible. Because... Wrists are just kind of like flopping around, except for Rain, who just wields like her stuff with straight arms or limp wrists. There's no in between. And this is really highlighted by the fact that they feel the need to like train her. But the people who are training her are no better with swords <laughs> than she is. 
And I actually kind of like the idea of like, okay, you're a vampire, you've got some bonuses here, but you're crappy with your swords and you really should know how to use those and so we have to train you. That's actually a really interesting like way to bring a character into a society like this. I yeah. like that it's like a character development moment. But like, yeah, if everybody sucks at swords, I don't know what you're learning. There's exactly one good scene of sword play in this movie and that comes later. We'll get there. So she leaves. It's important to note that randomly throughout this movie, and I'm not going to try to stop and point where they are because I don't remember where they are. We cut to Ben Kingsley being evil in his castle in the one place they shot for him because he clearly only came in for like two days. What are um, the only other good characters in this movie? Now, Ben Kingsley is Ben Kingsley, so he's, but he's really phoning this in. He does not get this movie. <laughs> it's true, uh, but it one... works. He looks so bored all the time. His face is... I laughed whenever he was on screen because his face is so stupid. He's just sitting on his throne with a a totally deadpan face. All of his acting, all of his lines are delivered completely monotone. He's a robot. He is an undead robot sitting on a throne all day, forever. (laughs) Until the, like, end scene of the movie, he also just mostly looks kind of like a fop. Like, he's just... None of the costuming in this movie is great, but his original outfit is particularly, like, meh. Yeah. His final outfit is actually kind of badass. Uh, Yes. But the one that happens around here, and this is the only one that I'm going to bring up specifically, because the rest of them are just him giving orders to his minions and, like, being mad about stuff. But randomly and unnecessarily after the, like, monastery fight... We get this sequence of him, like, eating a, like, 15-year-old girl. Yeah. And that's it. It's just like, okay, <laughs> I knew he was a vampire. I I don't know why I needed to see Ben Kingsley kill a, like, clearly very young... I don't know if the actress was actually young or not, but she looks very young. Yeah. Yeah, for the villain of the movie, Ben Kingsley does basically nothing (laughs) they're trying to make him seem super evil here but like he's a vampire of course he's eating people like this is like base level i assumed this with the premise you need to show me him doing worse stuff than this if you want me to think he's particularly bad rayan has eaten several more people at this point on screen (laughs) (sighs) so this is about when we get to Meatloaf, because she does get kidnapped uh, and taken by her dad's, like, minion to Meatloaf, who has a sex dungeon. (laughs) This scene kicks ass. (laughs) So we're introduced to this character. So the, the, the villain's henchman says, like, hey, we need to hang out here until nightfall because we're vampires and we'll get super fucked up if we don't. And Meatloaf is like... Yeah, okay, but I do want her because she's got a magic relic eye. And also she's pretty hot. And he is reclining on a bed surrounded by naked women. (laughs) And it's meatloaf. So he's like overweight and in like these like over the top. He looks the most 1800s or 1700s of any of the characters, really. He's got like the the white wig kind of thing going on. And he's like dressed very like aristocracy. Yeah. And he's just like having a great time. Like, yeah, these are my sex vampires. 
Oh, we have blood on tap if you want. They've literally got, like, people strung up. And they're, like, cutting their wrists to get, like, flagons full of blood. And they're not putting the arms back up afterwards, which shows a definite disregard for, like, food waste. But, like, whatever. He's just, like, a hedonistic vampire nobleman with a sex dungeon. And he doesn't seem to feel the need to take over more territory, but he definitely doesn't want Kagan to get more power, because, like, that would totally buzz his mood. <laughs> he, uh. This character is just just so loose and fun, and this scene is, like, one of the few sequences in the movie where the actors seem to be enjoying themselves. He is sassy He's and just horny so on Maine, and those are his only characters. Yeah, but hey, he's like, a vampire. Here's the thing. The women he's got he's surrounded by seem to be into it. <laughs> well, but the thing is, like the vampire thing with thralls, they're like brainwashed because they like get fed blood, vampire blood. They never established that in this movie. That's true, but I feel like it's a When thralls are just No, when thralls are described in this movie, it is literally People who follow vampires because they want to be immortal themselves. That but is they laid also, out at one point in the text. Y- yes, but they also established that thralls get power. Like, they can do things that hu- humans normally no. can't do. That's stated multiple times. No, they are stated that they can do things that vampires can't, which is mostly go around in the sunlight and stab people. Hmm. The humans are just people that... Kind of want to fuck vampires, mostly, seemingly. Like that episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where there's a secret club that vampires go to and all of the goth kids hang out there because they want to be vampires. Yeah. If like, this is true, this, this changes movie... the scene for me a little bit. But Yeah. but It's unclear because this movie's desperately unclear with every part of vampire lore. If you go into it with a certain understanding of vampires, you will come out with it with a very different reading than if you go in with a different, like, if the last vampire thing you watched was What We Do in the Shadows, this movie is hilarious. If the last thing you watched was actual, like, Bram Stoker's Dracula, then it's a little more creepy. But the movie itself does almost nothing to establish which it is. That's fair. Um, Also, the other reason I think it seems a little more consensual to me is that there's also just a hallway of other people making out like in the basement and like eating each other including some lesbians yeah again they are not particularly focused on it's like a hallway shot with a bunch of different like people making out but one of the people making out is a pair of women i need to i don't know (laughs) i i want to emphasize that they are also just eating each eating like each other in the hallway (laughs) like they're making out and eating each other but if they're eating each other well, I don't know. Whatever, you know. Someone is being eaten in the situation. It's muddied even more by the fact that apparently vampires can eat other vampires in this lore. Yeah. Because we, I mean, we see Rain doing it, which may be a outlier because she's half human. But it seems to be implied that vampires can also feed off of other vampires. I also feel like it's necessary to point out that Meatloaf does get some blood and, like, ring around a lady's nipple in this movie. That was a thing that happened. Yep. Anyways, Meatloaf gets killed when the 
uh, vampire hunters show up and knock out all the windows. So, With the exception of Michelle Rodriguez, because she was sent to report back to the Brimstone Society. Yeah, she has to hold down home base. Uh, so then she gets kidnapped by the Vampire Society. She gets kidnapped, like, uh, more in this movie than you'd expect. But also, like, it always leads her to where she was gonna go anyway, so it's not really that big a deal. Mm-hmm. She just kind of gets taken the places she wants to go. So at this point, they get back to the Brimstone Society. We are only now just halfway through this movie. But my notes end pretty quickly because at this point, it's training montage. Uh, her sword gets broken. She does some bonding with the people in the area, uh, like in the Brimstone Society. And then the longest, most unnecessary sex scene I've ever freaking seen in a movie. So bad. Oh my God. So I don't even dislike the idea of this like relationship kind of becoming a thing because it's Sebastian whose main character trade up to this point has been like, he is the suspicious one. Like he is like cautious and more worried about the vampires. And then they have like a conversation where she's like, oh, you don't know pain. I saw my mom murdered in front of me. And also my life is hell because I'm a vampire. And then he's like, well, my parents were vampires and they got killed by Vlad who then adopted me. And, and they're like, okay, fine. We have equally sad backstories. And then they bone. <laughs> they don't bone they right don't away. Right. Yeah. They bone the next morning after Rain has just experienced a trauma dream reliving her murdering her girlfriend. <laughs> and she immediately wakes up just absolutely horny and just grabs Sebastian, shoves him against the wall and starts making out with him. And then they just bone down right there. In what looks really uncomfortable position, honestly, because they're up against like a jail bar wall and she's like, I mean, hanging from the jail bars and he's like, it just doesn't look comfortable to me. If you're into that, I can, I guess I can see it, but like, it doesn't make any sense because she just, like you said, she just wakes up and now they're just like ripping each other's clothes off. And then it just yeah, goes on forever. On the scale? Yeah. That's the other thing about this is that it just keeps going. Like there's three or four points where you think it's going to fade out and it doesn't. And it's not like, again, he's bad at exploitation. So it's not framed in a particularly sexy way. We don't get really good like pans of their bodies. There's not like good erotic tension or anything. He licks her nipple. It's like a single shot with the corner of a table blocking out their pelvises down. So we just see them like torsos up, just like ramming into each other. And the door of the like cell is open. So it keeps like flipping out and then banging back closed. And it's noisy and just so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not a fun sex dungeon scene. It's just like... <laughs> Whatever. It's on the scale of weirdness. It is actually, I think, above the one in Alone in the Dark. And that was my previous weirdest sex scene. So, like, congrats, Uve. You found something you're superior at. Well, yeah, they, that, there's different versions of Alone in the Dark. So you may have just got the one that didn't have that scene in it. Yeah. But yeah, this one is even less motivated than that because these characters have not, aside from the one conversation they just had the night before, have had no real interpersonal connection or development. I choose to believe that <sighs> the only part of the dream she really remembered was her hot girlfriend and that's why she's real horny. 
And she's just doing this to like, uh, like it's not the same, but whatever. Um, uh, it's mostly just there so that we are given to care even slightly more about this guy. Anyways, her fancy swords break. So she and Vlad and Sebastian go to their weapons guy, who is also a butcher. But before we get there, this is also where the best sword scene in the movie happens and is a far better erotic sequence than the actual sex scene, which is where everybody has left the castle to go out training and Rain is talking to Katarine, who is basically warning her to watch her back because some of the Brimstone Society members are suspicious because she's a vampire and she's kind of hinting that she's actually not totally convinced that Rain is on their side. But this whole conversation happens while they are sparring and Katarine is wearing this like sexy leather outfit. And it's just like... And she's dual wielding. Kind of a good scene. <laughs> yeah, it's just two hot ladies having a, like, expiratory conversation while also sword fighting. And, you know, I'm bisexual. I get it. This one worked for me. <laughs> and it's good because the subtext of the conversation is dramatized in the sparring conflict. Mm-hmm. That's decent visual storytelling in one tiny scene in this entire movie. I will yes. say that the choreography of the scene reminded me a little bit, just just a little bit of like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure poses. <laughs> I have yeah, not seen it's, it. Because it's, it's just like, yes, my sword, one of my swords now behind my own head as, as I <laughs> yeah. fight with the other one. It's just like, excuse me. Oh, it's not well choreographed, but it is kind of hot. <laughs> It's it's a high water mark for an Uve Bowl scene. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is when they go to the butcher, and then meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, Katarine just betrays everybody, and uh, she like everybody gets murdered by Kagan's people, and she like goes to get the relic for herself. Uh, so by the time that well, rain decides to split up at this point from the other two guys because they don't go back to Bridgewater or not Bridgewater. They don't go back to um, Brimstone with her and she goes to like see what happened. Uh, And then she kills Katarine and takes the other relic. Which is the heart. The heart, uh, which I think is the sunlight one. Unclear. Yeah. This one is stored underwater. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So there's also a very slow underwater chase sequence that's very badly photographed. And then he, she just snaps her neck. <laughs> she just snaps her neck and leaves. Well, yes, she also the very slow her. underwater chase. She does eat her, but first she snaps her neck. Yeah. Uh, she eats her because she got stabbed and she needs the blood to heal the wound. Oh, when they go to the butchers, they pick up a variety of anti-vampire weapons and her new swords, uh, including very important Chekhov's bottle of holy water. <laughs> Anyways, then she just ties her hair back and goes to Kagan. Uh, this here, climax here. makes absolutely no sense. Sorry. Yeah, she's like, here, here I am. I am bringing the heart to you. Also, I have the eye. Here's the box. We at when we see Kagan have in his castle looking in his own box with the bone, but nobody for the next like 15 minutes actually checks the box with the heart in it. 
the, very the generous reading of this is that the thrall, the Domastir is his name, did actually accept Elric's deal and is deliberately not revealing that the box is empty and waiting for an opportunity to betray Kagan. But I don't think this movie is smart enough to have actually thought that far through. Also, that doesn't happen, so... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he gets... She goes there, and then the other two guys are in the woods like, well, snap, she can't do this on her own. And so they just barge in and, like, stab a few vampires and then get, like, taken to the dungeons. And she gets thrown in the dungeon, like, immediately because, of course she does. This is what would happen. Then they take her upstairs and tie her to a table for a bit. And her dad's like, I'm going to kill you and steal all of the things. And then she's like... Actually, I've got the heart, and then but fight not for even, a bit. but not even like they're going to cut out her eye to doing a ritual to get the vampire eye relic thing, and they think that they have the heart, so it's just the eye that they want, and she doesn't do anything to actually oh, no. resist it. She's tied down, and it seems like she's going to get her eye cut out until um, until Vladimir and Sebastian, like, jump off a balcony and, like, stab some vampires. And, and then... The way they get out of the dungeon is hilarious. <laughs> shouldn't have All they do is... Sebastian like somehow climbs up into the rafters of the cell and then Vladimir's like hey hey guard my friend disappeared I don't know where he went and the guard's like huh so he comes over and opens the door and then Sebastian just just like leaps from the rafter and kicks him (laughs) so that's how they escape Uh, that was a good moment. Anyway, in a in a better movie, that would be like a very good moment. To be fair, to be fair, Sebastian does say, "I can't believe that worked." <laughs> I can't believe that worked. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, a silly movie. Anyway, continue. Anyways, there's a fight. Vlad gets killed pretty early on, uh, and then Sebastian gets stabbed, and Rain is like, "No!" And then uh, she's like face to face with her dad, and she's totally about to get killed. And then Sebastian's like, I'm not quite dead yet. I'm going to throw that holy water at him now. Which then then gets gets caught. And then he, Sebastian shoots the holy water with an air bolt from a crossbow. Oh, yeah. It's the classic uh, thing I want to mention. Vladimir has a wrist crossbow. Yeah, it's very cool. It happens like four times in the movie. But every time it happens, like, oh, yeah, he has that. Uh, Uh, but anyway, and then she, what, now that he's holy watered, she like turns the bolt that a different bolt that he catches, uh, and stabs him with it in his own hands. And then she like shoves him and he like turns into ash. Yeah. He shrivels up into a desiccated corpse and then everybody's dead except for Sebastian. She goes to like bite him and he's like, no, 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 it's my time. And so he dies. Now everybody's dead. The bone, the, the rib, we know that it's in kagan's sleeve but she doesn't like grab it or anything she just walks to the throne in the throne room sits down and she now is the robot so there's something wrong with that throne that makes your face just go completely dead and then that's the movie it ends right there the movie has such an unsatisfying ending and i don't know what would have been better because she does like accomplish the thing she set out to do but that's that's all that happens 
Well, the movie has no thematic structure to hang the ending on. Yeah, there are no themes. There is only blood rain. <laughs> Limp wrists and spurts of blood. Yeah, and I don't know. It's very hollow. That's it. That's blood rain. It's not really that interesting. There's really not a lot to hang your hang this movie on. Um, I don't know if I recommend it or not. I guess it d- d- depends on what your threshold for boredom is. I mean, here's the thing. I think the key theme, if this movie can be said to have one, is like Rain's relationship to vampires versus her relationship to humanity. At least that's kind of what it, like, it starts off with. Like Such a generous reading. Oh, she's got a friendship with a human, but she's being captured by them. And then it's like, well, her dad's an evil vampire, so she has to go kill him. So she'll work with vampire hunters who are humans. But like at the end, she's alone. So her relationship with anybody is completely null and void so that's it well and there's also no real conflict between her and the humans that she works with i think that could be a theme of the movie in a different version that actually understood how to structure scenes and dramatize conflict or you know just cared (laughs) this is not that about anything that's the thing that this movie could have been a half decent fantasy adventure movie in the hands of someone who understood genre filmmaking and could add some depth to it. Look, I'm not asking for this to be the Lord of the Rings or even like particularly deep and thematic. I just want the ending to feel like it matters in any way, shape or form. That's all I'm asking. I don't think this needs to be good. I just want it to be enjoyable all the way through. Yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, We barely mentioned this. But Michelle Rodriguez is in the movie and she's doing fine, but she's also speaking with like a half British old timey accent. It's like 30% British and that's about it. Yeah, she's not, she's not phoning it in, but she is doing a pretty typical I'm the bad woman character, which she does get strung up with a lot in her early filmmaking career, especially. Uh, This is, I mean, she's also been on this podcast before, I think, right? Yeah, Yeah, she was one of the Umbrella security operatives in the first Resident Evil. She's much more interesting in that than in this. Definitely. Um, Where she's just, I don't know, she's kind of the antagonist of the, like, Bridgestone, Brimstone, Brimstone group. I just keep calling it Bridgestone. I don't know. It's very boring and they're incompetent, so I don't care. Um, Yeah. They're really bad at their jobs. We just have Heck vampires everywhere. At this point, why isn't everyone a vampire hunter? <laughs> like, there's so many vampires. Just have everyone be vampire hunters. Yeah, just just create a distribution program for holy water. You don't even need holy Everybody water. Can... You just need, like, a, a, a pitchfork, a torch. Just have everyone wear crucifixes and perfume themselves with holy water, and it's fine. <laughs> Anyways, Nathan, is there any fun facts about this movie? There are some fun facts about this movie. Uh, As I mentioned before, this movie was shot on location in Romania, and it seems like a lot of the actors enjoyed that uh, because I guess it's just a nice country. Supposedly, one of the castles they shot in was a castle that Vlad the Impaler stayed in for a night. I couldn't find any confirmation of this, but like spooky vampire trivia. 
this should have been our Halloween episode. Ooh. I, I found an interview with Uwe Boll from the publication Yugo from before the movie released. This was like kind of press junket lead up to the release interview. And this is where I've developed my part of where I've developed my theory of just understanding Uwe Boll as an artist. Because in this interview, his answers are always very short and he makes a lot of jokes and kind of weird jokes. But he talks very, very fondly about the people he works with, in particular, the people that he works with for effects and the actors. And he like highlights the people that he had like a pleasure working with. And I also found some discussion from some of the actors. Michael Madsen said that the movie, he, he, he hates the movie as a piece of <laughs> art. And he would totally work with Uwe Boll again. And Christana, oh, what's her name? Christana Lokan? Who I'm going to take Loken. a second here. Yeah. I actually think the actress who played Rain was one of the better performances in the movie. I think she did very well with this character. I think it's kind of a shame she never got to be more than like sexy villains moving forward. Yeah. I think she had potential as like a fun action heroine kind of Mila Jovovich type. Yeah, no, that's to she totally had that potential. But yeah, she talked in another interview uh, with her where she talked about like working on this movie very fondly. Apparently there were a lot of stray animals in Romania and like five of the cast and Uwe Boll all like adopted a pet. <laughs> <laughs> That okay. just like there were just like dogs and cats hanging out on set when they were shooting. So they just like adopted a like a bunch of them adopted animals and brought them home. And yeah, Billy Zane said that like working with Uwe Boll was really nice. And this is where I started to develop my theory. The closest historical filmmaking parallel to Uwe Boll isn't somebody who is as vain as your Tommy Wiseau's or as as kind of I guess like someone with the kind of hubris that Paul Thomas Anderson has where he clearly sees himself as some kind of profound artist the closest parallel is Ed Wood because Uwe Boll doesn't care if his movies are good he just loves making them and he has enough money to keep doing it. But he's just never... But he's just not good at it. <laughs> and he's been, like, shat on by critics for his entire career in a way that is pretty aggressive. And I'm going to keep tearing apart his movies because they are bad. But I think that I have gained a little bit of respect for Uwe Boll. And I would really much rather have somebody like him making movies than... Even like an Alfred Hitchcock or a Stanley Kubrick, because he's not torturing anybody. <laughs> and he seems to also have a kind of like to actually care about video games as movies, like care about adapting them and like bringing them to wider audiences, which seems to be why he has gotten so many of those licenses. But he's also bad at it. And they come with a built in audience, but like he was t asked in this interview, like, what other games he wanted to adapt. And he says, like, he wants to do Far Cry and he really wants to do Postal. That's like his ultimate dream is adapting Postal into a movie. And it's like, huh, yeah, like he actually seems to care about the things he's adapting, even if he's not good at adapting them. <laughs> so, yeah, that's just like a revelation I had about Uwe Boll as a as a director. Um, It's my understanding, a radically wealthy, like, German dude. Yeah. So whatever that is, 
I don't know, Roland Emmerich might be a comparison point on that point. Uh. He seems to maintain the same website for every ma- major movie he makes that also doubles as his like profile website. Because there's a section in it marked director that just has a list of literally everything he has worked on in any capacity, including stuff that he wrote that has not been produced. With like years marked and like he even has drafts marked out on there for scripts that aren't produced yet. Oh my god, it's his DeviantArt page. <laughs> Pretty much. So anyway, I don't know anything about Uwe Boll as an individual. I kind of understand why he makes movies the way he does. Oh, this movie was a massive financial flop. Uh, it had a $25 million budget and it only made under $4 million. <laughs> Oof, yeah, oh, like this no. was a huge loss, <laughs> which is uh, kind of surprising because his previous two adaptations did make money, even though they were terrible. And also, this one's better than those. <sighs> yeah, that's pretty much it. There isn't too much else to talk about on this movie. It's not a <laughs> very interesting film, to be honest. Do we want to do ratings? Yeah, the game is also not that interesting. It's pretty run-of-the-mill release. It got average to vaguely positive reviews yeah i rate this movie two extending fangs out of a mouth oh the other fun sorry there is one more fun fact that i wanted to talk about which is uh goes back to that scene with meatloaf that we talked about those actors in the scene with meatloaf are actual romanian prostitutes that uve bol hired to be in the scene because he didn't want to pay full price for extras (laughs) Huh. Well, that's not great. And he said that they turned out to be pretty good actors. Okay. I def- Yeah, see, that was one of the things that I had a feeling about. I just had that <laughs> sense. And I was like, this feels exploitative. Weird. I mean... They seemed comfortable. It's not great that you didn't pay them scale, Uve. That's kind of shitty, but... It's probably not the worst gig they've had that week. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they were, like, how much they were paid in relation to everybody else, but yeah, it's very neo realist of you, Uve. Anyways, the rest of you, give us ratings. Ratings for the rating being. I rate this movie one and a half tonfa swords. Dull or sharp? Though they're always dull. <laughs> um, Lexington. I give this five minutes of screen time for a dandy out of Dowd from Dishonored's sonorous, gravelly voice. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that'll do it for this episode of Video Game the Movie the Podcast. I have... Madsen played Dowd in Dishonored, just to be clear, so that that reference didn't come from nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Also, he's named Vladimir, which I thought was, like, very vampire-y, but it doesn't really come up to anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael Madsen looks so bored in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this has been Video Games and Movies Podcast. You can find the show at the places Nathan's going to say. You can find our show on Twitter at VGTM Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Bert Tram. You can find me on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. You can find me on Twitter at Conwell underscore Alex or on Facebook at Alex Conwell Creative. And Dice Weave is a thing we also do. Yeah, and you can find uh, all three of us at over on Dice Weave Podcast. And hey, check out our Halloween episode. That's it's kind of outside of the chronology. It's going it goes went up on 
you know, the 31st. So if you want a good first impression, go listen to that and then listen forward from the beginning of season one. All right. This has been Blood Rain. I think our next episode is Silent Hill, which I'm actually pretty excited to talk about. And we'll see you next time. Thank you all for listening. See you at the next checkpoint. And don't forget to save. See you next time.